I'm just gonna warn you. I'm gonna go a little long today. So just kind of settle in and I promise you will be out by 4 p.m. <laughs> Sooner if you're lucky. Cooperate with me. All right. So last week I um, promised you or threatened you, depending on your point of view, a, a deep dive into one of the more controversial doctrines of the faith because we have to do it. It's in, in John 6 and here we are. It's one of the most important chapters on the subject of how is it that people come to Jesus. Okay? And we're really looking at it from God's point of view. So we are blessed with Christ's own words on how it is that an unbeliever becomes a believer. Now, we're not talking about what we see. We're talking about what we don't see. What happens inside someone. That's what we're talking about. So let me start with somebody outside of John's Gospel. The most famous convert to Christianity in the history of the world. The Apostle Paul. When Paul was saved, he was not seeking the Lord. See, we're going to have a seekers class. Paul would not have come. He would have come and killed us <laughs> for having it, but he would not have come to attend. That was not what was in his mind to do. So um, he hated Christ. He hated Christ's followers, and he was on his way to kill Christians when Jesus knocked him to the ground, surrounded him with light, and told him he was going to become a witness for Jesus to the Gentiles. And the story appears in Acts chapter 9, but Paul tells the story again in Acts chapter 22, and he tells it again in Acts chapter 26. That's how important the story is. Never in the tellings, in all three, the event and the, the two times he tells it again, never does he say that Jesus asked him if he wanted to do this. <laughs> Even if he wanted to come to Christ, he doesn't ask him. Jesus doesn't offer him a choice at all. Everything about the conversion and the transformation of the worst per persecutor of the church in those days, this guy Saul of Tarsus, the transformation of him into the Apostle Paul is a direct divine action. And in the final telling in Acts chapter 26 when Paul is telling his story to King Agrippa, this is how he says it. O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescue, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Never asked him if he wanted to do that. That's an act of sovereign grace. And in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul says in his little letter talking about himself, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But God, 
But God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Jesus not only didn't ask Paul, he failed to ask Paul if he wanted to be an apostle on the Damascus road. Paul was set apart even from his mother's womb to be called through God's grace. So the question is, is Paul special in regard to this being set apart, uh, this work of grace, or is this true of all who come to Jesus in salvation? Is that the normal thing? Now not the way, I'm not talking about falling down in a bright light, I'm just talking about this transformation, this inner transformation that happens to him. Jesus doesn't knock most of us down. I didn't get knocked down, but inwardly I actually did. But uh, we're going to answer that question today. Is that normative that God just saves people or is he begging people and hoping they come? So remember where we are in John's gospel here. It's the day after Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread. And the miracle itself made people think that this guy Jesus, he could become our bread factory. (laughs) And they started following him for that, right? They wanted to start a revolution. They wanted to make him king. It says in chapter 6 verse 15. And they followed him across the Sea of Galilee, right? But, but Jesus didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted bread when they needed salvation. So John 6:27 it says, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So God is looking for faith. God requires faith. That's an essential element. You have to believe in Jesus. Then they tell Jesus what they really want, which is bread, like manna, like Moses brought to them. So in verse 31, Jesus calls it bread from heaven. And bread from heaven to them means free bread every day forever. That's how they read that. And he tells them in verse 32, Jesus says, their need isn't for bread for their tummies. It's rather what he calls the true bread out of heaven. That's what they need, the true bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So there it is in verse 36, you do not believe. And that's where we stopped last time. So Jesus himself is the bread of life. And the hunger and thirst he mentions in verse 35 is spiritual. It's an internal desire to know the truth. To seek God and to know God. Life is knowing God and having him as one's father, king, savior, all of that. But they have to believe in him whom he sent. They have to believe in Jesus. And believe is much more than just acknowledging facts, right? Oh, I believe. I believe whatever you say, you know. Jesus defines belief as coming to him. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So coming is actually a 
definition of faith. It's an expression of what faith actually is. And the people he's talking to, they're not disbelievers in God. They all believe in God, but they see God as their servant for their whims and their particular desires. But God is, who is God? God's God. So he doesn't exist for us, right? We exist for him. And we are sinful. And we are undeserving creatures who owe him our lives. We owe him our worship. We owe him service. But those people that came across the Sea of Galilee to seek out Jesus for bread, that's not where they were. And Jesus can see into their hearts and he knows they don't believe. So like all men, they have a choice. Put their faith in God's Redeemer, God's Son, or don't. And they don't. And here's where John 6 gives us so much more about that. We could, I think fairly, call what follows here the salvation of men from God's point of view. And the point of view of Jesus. The one who accomplishes redemption according to the Father's will. It's something scripture speaks to in different places, but not as comprehensively as it does here and with kind of unique language here. So as I said, these are are deep theological waters, Uh, but this is not a theological lecture from Jesus. He's not writing the book of Romans or something. Um, This is a real world situation. He's talking to real people. Literally, it's at the height of Jesus' popularity after feeding all those people that way. Um, That was the greatest public miracle that he did. It caused all these people to come after him, to want to make him king, to make him a bread factory. And at the moment, at the particular moment, it's a movement that wants to put him at the top to actually make him the king. So it's kind of a revolutionary movement. But it's not generated by faith, it's generated by self-interest. And those are very different things because one is God-centered and one is man-centered. It's not a God-centered movement. movement. It's a man-centered movement. So, Jesus lays out what has to happen for men to be saved. He's going to tell them that. And it's something that only God can do. So, believe and come are the two operative words. You have to believe and come to him. You have to do that. He's the bread of life. He's the only source of eternal life. All of our answers are in him. And God sent him so we can know God and be right with God be reconciled to God and enter into an everlasting relationship with him but these folks don't believe. If their hearts are are tied entirely to this world and if they are not humble before God and are unrepentant and self-satisfied in spiritual things and not seeking God then how can they be saved? Who can be saved? That's a familiar question from the Gospels. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and it says Jesus loved him. He, he was so drawn to him as a person because he was, he was humble and it seemed like uh, he was kind of there, you know, and he asked, what must I do to be saved? He asked that question. And when Jesus said, come and follow me, he couldn't do it. Remember that? And he walked away. And the disciples were pretty shocked by all of that and they said, well, who can be saved? And you remember Jesus' answer to that? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God saves. That's how. When God saves people, they hunger for God. They hunger for God beyond the, this world of stuff that we're in. They thirst for the mercy of God. They seek the salvation of God. 
So look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So who comes to Jesus? Just based on that sentence there, that one verse. Those that the Father gives to him, right? Those are the ones that come. And if they come, how secure are they? Well, if they come, they will be saved forever. And Jesus will never cast them out. They're secure. Then look at verse 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now that phrase, raise it up on the last day, is important. It shows up four times here in this section. This is the first time. It means resurrected to eternal life. That's what he's talking about, raised up on the last day. All that the Father gives the Son will be in Christ's eternal kingdom and be delivered from God's judgment on the unrepentant. Death and hell have no power over those that the Father has given to his Son. They can't be lost. And then Jesus nails it down in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's a truly glorious promise to all who believe that we will be raised up on the last day. Count on it. It's a promise. Now if you turn yourself over to Jesus and become his, his man or woman or child or whatever you are, he promises to raise you up on the last day. So death holds no terror for you. Now, between verse 40 and verse 41, there might be a little time that has gone by. A certain space of time. Could have been a couple of hours or something. Probably on that same day. But, but a little later in the day. Now the reason I say that. There's a couple of clues to that. The word therefore. Now in my New American Standard. 1995 Bible. <laughs> it says therefore. Other translations might have so. Or then. Something like that. But it's the normal word for therefore. And that word. And it's in a narrative context. Is showing a linkage between something now. And then something that's going to follow. Okay, so something um, is happening and then something else is going to follow after that somewhat directly. So it's kind of a shift of some kind. It recognizes a shift in the narrative that might show a change. It might show a change in time or location. And I think the reason it does here is because the people speaking to Jesus all the way up to, to verse 41 are the crowd, the people that followed him across the Sea of Galilee, right? But all of a sudden it changes. In verse 41, it becomes the Jews. Now, John wouldn't make that change from the Galileans that crossed the Sea of Galilee to Jesus and to suddenly start calling them the Jews. When John says Jews, he almost always means Jewish leaders, okay? Priests or rabbis or scribes or something like that. And we find out in verse 59, you can let your eyes skip down there if you want to, but it, it says that part of this conversation takes place in the synagogue. Where indeed we would find who? Jewish authorities, right? So it's likely the conversation with the crowd at some point that day they went to the synagogue and the conversation continued in the synagogue and then the Jewish leaders interact with Jesus because suddenly it's the Jews we're talking to here. 
So I think that the shift at verse 41 very likely suggests a shift in location and maybe the passing of a little time, maybe a couple of hours or something. So the Jewish leaders in Capernaum heard either what Jesus said to the crowd or they heard about it, that Jesus is the heaven sent bread of life. He's the bread from heaven. That's quite a claim for a human being to make. And it would be a wild crazy claim unless it's true, right? And boy are they grumbling. Verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Well, I'm really glad they're grumbling because now Jesus answers our question <laughs> about how it is that people, some people believe and some people don't believe. He tells us who the people are that the Father gives to the Son so he will raise them up on the last day. And he's very clear. Verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. I know can is a little tiny word in English. But it's a very powerful word. And it's, in Greek it's the word dunamis. Which means power. Or ability. Or capacity. In other words. It's the difference between may and can. Right? And I've, I brought this up many times before. May I go to the store? Or if a child says can I go to the store? The mother says you may go to the store. But you can't. Because may is permissive and can't is what's being determined, right? So you may go to the store, but you can't because I'm not going to let you. You may, though. You have the capacity to do it. But, um, or I should say you can go to the store because you have the capacity, but you may not. That's what I meant to say. So that kind of an idea. But anyway, there's no pow- you don't have any power on your own to come to Christ without the Father drawing you. So... Dunamis is something you can do and he's saying you can't do it. You can't unless God is drawing you. So no one can come to Jesus on their own power, on their own will. The Father has to draw them. And this word draw is also a pretty strong word. It can mean like leading by a rope or something like that. Like you're walking down the street leading your donkey or your horse or something. It can mean like that but often it means something very strong. Uh, a couple of examples of that. John 21, 6 at the end of the, end of the book there. You know, the Jesus, after the resurrection, the disciples go fishing and they see Jesus on the shore and he says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they cast it and all these fish come in. And then they're bringing it back and it says, they were not able to haul it up. To haul it to shore. They couldn't drag that net to, drag it. That's the word. They couldn't haul it to shore because it was so heavy. So they're dragging it and they couldn't even do it. That's the same word as draw that's used here in John chapter 6. In Acts 21:30, a mob grabs the apostle Paul in the temple and it says the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul they dragged him out of the temple. That's the same word as draw. James 2:6, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? That's the same word. A little more metaphorical there, it's probably not physical but being compelled to go to court, right? That kind of an idea. So this drawing or dragging is God exercising his power to awaken the soul and enlighten the mind 
and wake up the dull heart and renew the spirit so that we see Christ as exactly what we need and we want him. That is something that God does. Now, I want you to take verse 44 and hold on to it because we have to run through all these verses. But it's going to come back at the end of the chapter when Jesus explains, well, he kind of explains why Judas is a traitor and why these people don't believe. So it's coming up. So hang on to it. Don't forget that idea. But grasp what it says right now. Okay. So now listen. So God does invite people to come to him. He pleads with people. He calls out to people. He invites people. He does all of that. But we will not come. Unless he draws us to himself. Unless he drags us. He does that by granting us new life. An awakened heart. It's an awakening. We saw that in John chapter 1 actually. John chapter 1 verse 12. As many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born. What does he say? Not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. It's God's will. That that happens. They were not born by the will of man. But God's will. We cannot come to him. Without him drawing us. We cannot will to come to him. Unless he affects our will. So it's not our will to come without God changing our heart. His will is to grant us this new birth. And that awakens us to who Christ is. And it it makes him glorious to us. And so we come. Why can't we come on our own? Without being drawn. It's because of the human condition. The fundamental reality of human beings. Is that we're in bondage to sin. And that sin runs really deep. And that's why the Bible doesn't teach. The idea of free will. It never uses that expression in scripture. Except with regard to a free will offering or something. That's something you just choose to do. But in terms of things about God. It never uses that language. Will is always connected with God's will. In terms of salvation. Nobody makes us act as we do. Do we make real choices? Yes. Are we robots? No. We make real choices. But. Our will is in bondage. That's our natural state. Ever since man fell. We are spiritually dead. We're unable to know God. We're we're unable to think right things about God spiritually. Our will is in bondage to our fallen nature. Which is sin. And that is a foundational idea of the Protestant Reformation. In fact Martin Luther wrote a book. It's probably his most important book actually. He wrote a lot. I've got volumes of Martin Luther's work But the most important book he wrote is called The Bondage of the Will. And he and the Roman Catholic Erasmus traded some pretty serious arguments with each other. But Luther had the case biblically. The will is in bondage. And unless God breaks the bondage of the will by his grace we will not come to him. We're not free in that sense. You have a real will but not a free will to choose God. Because you're a sinful person. And you're fallen. So in verse 45... Jesus elaborates on all of this by quoting Isaiah chapter 54 verse 13. Well what's Isaiah 54? Well what, is it, what does Isaiah 54 follow? Yeah Isaiah 53. Yeah that's right. So Isaiah 53 is all about the Messiah suffering and dying for our sins. Right? It's the clearest 
teaching about that in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Wow. And from there, Isaiah chapter 54 follows and begins with these words. Shout for joy. Shout for joy. It's all about Israel under the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. And the key line is in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 10. Which says, uh, well one of the key lines. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. This is God speaking. But my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. Then verse 13, this is what Jesus is quoting. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. Now that kind of language is pretty common um, in talking about the Lord's redemption of Israel when Messiah comes. So in John 6:45, Jesus says this is what happens to everyone who truly believes, who comes to him. They're taught of the Lord. Again, it's a divine action. And this work of God is, is essential to the promise of the New Covenant. And if you read the New Covenant passages in the Old Testament about the covenant that's coming because Israel is so disobedient, this is the language it uses. Let me just read you Jeremiah 31, 33 and following. God says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again. There's the connection, this teaching idea. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How will they all know the Lord? From a, from a book? From a, a sermon? No, that's good, but that's just information. I will put my law within them. God has to do that. God has to take the information and write it on the heart or we won't, it won't be here. We won't keep it. We won't respond. On, I will be their God and they will be my people when he writes it on our heart. So God directly acts on the human heart and they will be his people. They will know him. So all the blessings of the new covenant are divine actions. God does it. It's always that way in scripture. And the whole Old Testament, what is the Old Testament anyway? It's a, it's a lot of wonderful promises. And other than that, it's pretty much a history of gross human failure all the way through with a few very rare exceptions. That's because the will of man is captive. The will is captive. It's in bondage to our fallen nature. So you take holy laws like the law of Moses and give it to sinners. People whose will is in bondage. They take the law and they break it. That's what they do with it. Laws don't change the heart. Now some people can conform to certain things and try to be nice and all those kind of things. But in terms of actually living a life that's pleasing to God you can't do it. Because your will is in bondage. So God acts to change us by his power from the inside out. And that's what the new birth is. That's what's called regeneration. So Jesus teaches in verse 45 of John 6. In the, in the middle there. It's written in the prophets. They shall all be taught of God. 
See, that's the quote. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's God speaking to the heart, writing on the heart, awakening the heart. So let's take these words as they flow down here from what Jesus said in verse 37. Remember Jesus, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, right? And here, he says, everyone who has heard and learns from the Father comes to me. So the Father gives the Son to those that he has taught, those who have heard him. A man can give you information, but God writes it on the heart. And when he does that, they come. Now, the conversation keeps going. Jesus doubles down on having come, come from heaven, even though they're all upset about it. Do you know that Jesus doesn't always change his tune when people are upset about what he says? He kind of stays on the same course. Ever notice that? Because he's telling the truth. He's going, oh my gosh, they're offended. I better stop. He doesn't, he never does that. But the very thing the religious leaders were grumbling about in verse 41, he doubles down on. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. None of you people know God, but I know because I come from there. And then he makes a truly, truly statement. Yeah. And here's where he doubles down on being the bread of life. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. For the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh no, he's talking about his flesh. He's as bread. This kind of rattles them till their teeth start falling out. <laughs> Not really, but it gets worse. Verse 52, the Jews began to inquire with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Good question. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as the living father sent me and I live because of the father so he who eats me will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down of heaven not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Oh my goodness what does he mean? It's not about Jesus as a tri-tip. <laughs> it's not about a vampire cocktail, Jesus. This whole discourse is about what is from heaven. The true bread. The true drink. And so when he says that, he means it's spiritual. Right? This is not salvation by sacrament either. It's not the Lord's table, although it's related to that. But it's not that. That hasn't even happened yet. Nobody's ever heard of that yet. So he's not talking about that. He's been super clear already about what brings you eternal life, right? He said it very clearly. Verse 40, back up there, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
So faith is the way to eternal life. Faith is the way to come to Jesus. Faith is the way to be reconciled to God. But eating him and drinking him is a very powerful metaphor, if you will, or a picture language to describe, describe what that faith is like. We are taking him. We imbibe him. We eat him. We bring him in. We take his words and make them part of us. We let him permeate our interior self, our hearts and our minds. So it's metaphorical. And we use, we use language like that today too. I devoured a really good book last night. I mean, we say that when we, met, we read something, right? Some of you people swallow the lies of politicians, you know? <laughs> That's how we use language like that, right? You, we, eat, we eat it, we take it in, you're buying it, you're giving yourself to it. You tell me something and I say, let me chew on that for a while. Is that really what I'm gonna do with what you gave me? <laughs> Unless it's a cookie, no. So it's metaphorical language, just like the living water was met metaphorical language when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well about water, the living water. So Jesus was really clear in verse 35 that if we believe in him as the bread of life, we will no longer hunger and thirst. We will have God as our father and we will know we are his and be satisfied with him. He becomes the foundation and life of my soul just like physical food becomes the foundation and life of my body. Right? I need it. But you need spiritual life that only Christ can bring. And he is that life. He is that life. Not his ideas or his morals. It's him. His morality is just an expression of who he is. That's not what we're believing in. We're believing in him. Because he gave his body and shed his blood for us. That's what we're eating. The reality of the cross that's coming. So Jesus' words are just too much for these people and even for his disciples the shocks his disciples the disciples at this point pretty much see him as a prophet more like Elijah you know who was known for wonderful miracles maybe he's the Messiah though he rejects the idea of being a king and we've tried to make him our king but he won't do it so these words shake them up the bread of heaven language about himself is too much verse 54 he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink it's too much what did that mean eat his flesh they can't handle that idea now in verse 60 we have the reaction of the disciples so John 6 started with the crowd then it talked about the Jews, which would be Jewish leaders. And now it's talking about the disciples. These are people that follow Jesus. Now look, Capernaum is where this is taking place. That was Jesus' headquarters. He would have had a lot of followers there. So we're talking about more than just the 12. We're talking about a lot of people. His actual disciples that have chosen to follow him or believe in him in some way as the Messiah or a prophet or something. They, they're listening to him. They're in his camp. That's the way they see it. Verse 60, therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It's just too much. The claim is too fantastic. They don't get it and they don't want it. They don't want the bread out of heaven. They want real bread. So he speaks to them in verse 61. Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to him, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? 
What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So he's reaffirming that he's from heaven, right? What if you saw me going up? I mean, I told you I came down. Would you believe if you saw me going up? What does it take for you people? If they have a problem that he came from heaven, what if they saw him ascend? And the key here is verse 63, and here he explains it. It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Everything Jesus has said about all of this are spiritual realities. He's not talking about his flesh and blood except in the sense that he gives his life. But in terms of eating him, it's talking about his person, taking him in. The flesh profits nothing. God, God gives spiritual life to men. You won't come up with faith out of your flesh. But God can give it to you. He can draw you. He can drag you to Christ. And in all of this, Jesus sees what the true problem is. His disciples don't believe. So verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. Even among his followers, he sees the same lack of understanding that he, that he saw in the crowd from the other side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the same lack of understanding he saw in the rabbis. He, he, their hearts are dark. They're not awakened. They're not alive. The Spirit of God has not awakened them. What they want from Jesus is not what God sent Jesus for. Not what God wants for them. So now Jesus returns to what he said in verse 44. Remember I told you to hang on to verse 44? <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That was verse 44. Now verse 65. He was saying, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. He changes the language just a little bit there. In verse 44 it was, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Here it's no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. It is a gift. God has to grant you the ability to come to Jesus. And this is why some will not believe. Faith is a gift. So if you preach the gospel to a crowd of people like brother did last week and some of them come, it's a gift. It's a gift. Spiritual understanding is granted by God's grace to those he has chosen and given to the Son. And there's a perfect description of this actually in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, the very first convert in Europe was Lydia, this, this wonderful woman. And it says about her, Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6. God opens the heart to respond. He draws. And if he doesn't open the heart, there will be no response. It'll be, well, that's interesting. But Lydia became a wonderful believer. Without God opening the heart, the gospel message for her or for anyone else just falls on the ground. Or as we say, falls on deaf ears. Because it's not taken in. God has to do it. Now, I know some people don't like this teaching. They reject it uh, because they are committed to the idea of 
it not being fair. When I have conversations with people, it's not fair for God to choose some people to be saved and leave other people out. One thing it is not is unfair. That is the one thing it is not. If God draws some and doesn't draw others, that's not unfair. Not only do we all sin, but the will of every human being on earth is in bondage. None of us would come to Christ if God did not grant it to us. And many scriptures point to this, but I guess the most detailed one is in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read that real quick. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Paul says, this is the Apostle Paul. He knows because he's been there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He's writing to a church. So, so you used to be this. You used to be dead according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, we Jews, even we Pharisees, all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. And then he says those two wonderful words, but God, that's who we were, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Without this work of God bringing life to our hearts we would be bound in sin and death. That was us too. So fairness is no one gets saved. God lights a match under the earth and burns the whole thing. No one is saved. That's fair. Because that's what we deserve. No one comes who is not drawn, not made alive. Justice is universal damnation. Mercy is what God does for many, many millions of people by drawing them to the Savior. It's grace alone that saves. And God doesn't stop anybody from coming to Jesus. God doesn't keep you from coming to Jesus. It's our own nature, our own anti-God, self-centered, I want to do it my way, I don't need you, heart that keeps people from coming. God doesn't stop people. They just won't do it. Because we're so deeply fallen. We won't come on our own. Let me give you an illustration real quick. I was thinking of this. Picture an Israeli soldier. He's in the IDF. He walks alone into a gathering of 200 Hamas terrorists. Unarmed. And he says, all who wish to live, come with me. Or you will be destroyed. How many of the 200 Hamas terrorists will go with him? Just, just what do you think? 10, 20, no, none, right? What will they do with this unarmed Israeli soldier? They will kill him. Do they have the capacity to come to him? Yes, they do. Will they? No, because their will is against him. I'm just using that as a human example. In the same way, 
God isn't stopping us from coming to him. We're stopping ourselves from coming to him because we're against him. That is human nature. Whether you're religious or not religious, you're against him if you won't come to him on his terms. And people won't. But God wants to save all kinds of people, so he does. By the millions and millions and millions. So, the terrorists have free will, but they don't exercise it because they're full of hate for this person. Their hearts are full of hate, so they kill him. That, the, the will of a human being is directed by the heart. And if your heart is anti-God, you will not come. You won't. Our choices always follow our hearts. So man's natural inclination is anti-God. Men prefer idols or their own desires, the, the self-idol kind of a thing. Their will is in bondage to the corruption of their hearts. So they say no to Jesus. So would we all without God directly intervening in us by the power of Holy Spirit, would, would we come at all? We wouldn't, but when God does intervene that way, we come. But without it, we would not come. So, just like God did with the Apostle Paul, the worst of us can be overwhelmed by God's grace. You don't have to be knocked on the ground and have a great light sur surrounding you. You just have to have God touch your heart like he did to Lydia and open your heart. That's all that has to happen. And then when that happens, you see Jesus clearly and how wonderful he is, how utterly worthy he is. You're awakened and you're drawn by the Spirit of God to him. Now is that a forced conversion? No, it's not forced, it's an awakening. It's a totally different thing. When we talk about Paul, we didn't, he didn't choose it. God came to him, God chose him. Well, why did he, if he was forced, why did he labor heart and soul for the entire rest of his life, ultimately laying down his life before a headman's axe to serve Jesus? Why did he do it? Because he was forced? Read his letters, he wasn't forced. He was compelled. He did want to do it. God did move him to do it. But grace awakened him and he saw how worthy Jesus was and how good God was. So he came willingly with a full heart, a heart full of gratitude because God changed his inside and awakened him. It just, it's like, I just used the expression that God makes the lights come on. Oh, Jesus, he's wonderful. I'm a sinner. He provided a way of salvation for me in the cross. He shed his blood for me. He died in my place. Oh, that's what it is. That's not being forced. It's being enlightened and then you want to come then your will is activated to come because now you don't hate God you love God and so he transforms us from the inside so why do some believe and others don't God's grace brings to faith and nothing in ourselves that means that following Jesus is just a human response to an amazing man wow he made bread let's follow him that's not salvation that's not saving faith the religious thing is not a work of grace. So, let's wrap this up. Verse 66, John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples, see we're talking about disciples now, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Why not? Well, from a human point of view, 
He said things they didn't like. From the divine point of view, these were not people that the Father had given to the Son. That's what John 6 is all about. This is God's choice. From eternity, Paul said, Paul was called in his mother's womb before he murdered Christians and persecuted them and tortured their families. He was already called to be an apostle. God already had that all worked out. If, if you're not given to the Father by the Son, you can't come. But if you believe in Jesus, you have no reason to fear at all. Because here's what happens to some people. Well, how do I know if I was given by the Father to the Son? If you come to Jesus, if you believe, what did Jesus say? All that the Father gives me, back in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All who believe are saved. You don't have to worry about the counsels of God in eternity if you believe in Jesus, if if you've given yourself to him. Because you are in that group that was given to the Son. You have to rest in the promises that Jesus made. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. If If you come, you are saved by the mercy and the grace of God. That's all you really need to know. You need to come. Let's pray. Our great sovereign God, we thank you for calling us, awakening us, drawing us to your Son. Your grace is free. It's free to us as it awakens us. Awakens not only faith but gratitude. And we love you for this. And we will, by your love, Rejoice and delight in you forever. Thank you for saving us, as unworthy as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a tad more there in John 6. We'll start on that next week.